and maybe finally as we as we as we listen to our politicians and our would-be politicians which of them speak of the world with wonder and awe in their voices when have you ever heard our politicians our prime minister talk with longing of the sea or of the deep outback or of what the earth feels like after the rain how dare how dare they how dare they speak down to the australian people when they know so little it seems of the conditions that are conducive to the happiness of our souls so i'm for your country kelly o'shaughnessy and i will march down that road with you any day of the week version of us and how do we actually build it? I'm Lillian Spencer and you're listening to The Remakers. Hey everybody, welcome to The Remakers. This is a special episode. It wasn't on our calendar, but a few weeks ago, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, which is this huge body of scientists from around the world who volunteer their time, came out with a long-awaited report on the state of climate change. And it's been called a code red for humanity, or to paraphrase REM, the end of the world as we know it. And when I listened to the reactions to this, I sort of noticed two streams. One was from my already engaged, politically active or environmentally aware friends who were actually really alarmed by this report. They felt that they understood its significance, that it was really, really scary, that things are worse than we thought. And the second group that I noticed were my more kind of doing everyday life friends and family who seemed to just be too overwhelmed with lockdown, COVID, the Delta variant, all of the other things going on in the world to really even have the headspace for this conversation. And I wanted to see if we could have an episode of the show that could help bring comfort and be of use to both audiences. So I got on the phone to Kelly O'Shaughnessy and David Ritter. Kelly O'Shaughnessy is the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Conservation Foundation. She is just an awesome leader, really grounded. I have so much time and respect for her. I really admire where she is coming from and the work that she is doing. And David Ritter likewise. For those of you who've listened to other episodes of the show, you may have heard him in episode two of the podcast. It's a great conversation. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you you missed it. But he is CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific. And so these two leaders have gotten to know each other. They've become friends. They've both been really influential in the formation of Australia Remade, which is the organization I work for. So I wanted to, to see if they could have a really candid chat with us and with each other about how they're processing this news, about what it means for them and their work, what it means for all of us, and kind of where to from here. It is a really informative, fascinating, 
and really digestible conversation. It's not going to send you wanting to curl up in the fetal position. It's going to make you feel more empowered, more positive, and more informed by the end of it. So I hope you get out a lot out of it. And without further ado, here's David and Kelly. Okay, David and Kelly, welcome to The Remakers. Thank you so much for being here today to explain to us this report and these times that we find ourselves in as kind of crazy and um, discombobulating as they may seem. I'm really looking forward to unpacking it a little bit with you guys and hearing what you think we can take away and, and how we can go from here. But before we get kind of too stuck into it, I've given our audience a little bit of an introduction, but would you mind both introducing yourselves and maybe just sharing a little bit about you and kind of what brings you to this work? Kelly, can we start with you? Because we haven't had you on the show before. Welcome to the Remakers. Thank you. It's really exciting to be here. Uh, so everyone out there, I'm Kelly O'Shaughnessy. Very, very lucky to be the CEO of the Australian Conservation Foundation, and we are the national environment group in this beautiful country uh, that we seek to protect um, and I, um, I was lucky because I grew up in the rough and tum tumble suburb of Carrio in, in Victoria, um, full of like tough um, upbringing, but full of people with a heart of gold. And, um, and after a little while in my young teenage years, we moved out to the country. Uh, and um, I lived in a caravan while mum and dad were building the house, which took several years. So um, being lucky to have lots of different experiences, live in the city and country, being around folks who have um, not much money or education, I'm lucky enough to my, be very well educated um, by my wonderful parents and to be fortunate enough to, to you know, have it make a good living now. So I don't buy into the divides that are out there in the world and all of this commentary about the divides. I think there's a lot more that brings us together than divides us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. And um, how about you, David? We've had you. We were lucky enough to have you as our very first guest on the show, which remains a very beloved episode. I still get feedback about it. Um, but welcome back and thank you for being here today. And for anyone who hasn't actually met you or, or heard you speak before, could you just introduce yourself for us? I'd be glad to. And it's very, very lovely to be uh, invited back. Um, so I'm David Ritter, the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific. Um, and maybe I'll just say a little bit about how pleased I am to uh, be here with Kelly this afternoon um, because one of the real strengths, I think, in this work is uh, the friendships, the comradeships, the collaborations you have along the way. And I'm very happy to say that Kelly has been an important influence, a friend, an advisor, a mentor, a peer, a collaborator, a colleague. I think she's a wonderful leader of the ACF. And every opportunity I get to collaborate with Kelly is just a, a real pleasure. She was a person who will always take the option that builds trust, um, deeply focused, and uh, uh, we are... Uh, we are stronger uh, when we are together. So it's great to be chatting this afternoon. Thanks so much, David. It's very sweet. Thank you both. And I mean, you know, we are so lucky to have you both on speed dial and to have your 
um, big hearts and big brains contributing to the very existence of Australia Remade and the ability to do something like this podcast. And I just admire and respect you both so much as leaders. So I feel incredibly blessed to be able to sit here and have this conversation um, and put it out into the world. But, you know, I'm really conscious that right now, like I've asked a couple of friends, I'm about to interview these incredible environment leaders, people who are, you know, paying attention, you know, would have seen the IPCC stuff come out. And I sort of said, is there anything you want me to ask them? And one of them who's, you know, a single mom in lockdown week eight, going into at least another month of it. And she's like, oh my goodness, I haven't even had the headspace. Like I care about this stuff, but I'm just trying to survive right now. I don't even know where to start. And I sort of thought, isn't that true? Like COVID is just wall-to-wall media coverage. And the only thing edging COVID out is greater tragedy, like more immediate tragedy, Afghanistan or Haiti or like some other piece of horrible news. And I just wanted to check in before we sort of get into the nuts and bolts of, you know, the IPCC, like how are you guys doing as leaders? What is it like to try to lead environment organizations at this time when the space is so crowded and we're all just doing our best to kind of try to get by? And even if you're not in lockdown in Australia or half of Australia, you're somewhere where Delta is taking over again. Like what is sustaining you right now and what is helping you to show up for other people? Big question. I know. I, I think, you know, um, the, the the reality of the world is the reality of the world and we get to hear a lot of the bad stuff and not a lot of the good stuff. So I found myself not watching the news for a long time in lockdown two in Melbourne, if you can remember all the way back then, the big one for us. Um, now I am watching it and hanging in there for the end of it when the good news stories come on because there's a lot of good news in the world. So I think – and we're also at a tipping point, I feel. Like we've there's so much momentum that is being built around action on climate change in particular that we're not there yet and it feels like we're not going to get there, but it also feels like that with the pandemic and we know there are some solutions to that. It's the same with climate change. In fact, the solutions are here. It's always been a problem of not having the right amount of political momentum and to some extent momentum within the business community, which I think has changed. Um but our jobs as leaders is to um, excite and inspire our own people and the people of Australia or wherever you're working for the future that we could have if we work for it. There's a saying that the future is not set, and that's true. It's not set, but it is going to be set by the people who take action today. So when the pandemic hit last year in March, ACF decided to make disruption deliver. So we, we, we changed our campaigns, um, made us relevant to a moment that was disruptive, a moment that where science was important to decisions, a moment where the economy and jobs became very important again and health and we could link that back to our work and um, and inspire people about the country we could have. So in, because of that, I kind of feel okay actually and so do my staff um, because we're excited by what we can create and then we know that there's some tipping points coming up in a positive way that we can tip over in a positive way if we stay focused right now. Thank you, Kelly. David, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, look, I suppose in, in moments of, of moments of crisis, uh, speaking personally, I, I try and think about um, what the obligations are in those moments of crisis. And we, we, I think, talked last time, Lily, about the fact that no one can... Um, 
no one can or should or even think they can bear the weight of the world on their shoulders. We, so what we can all do is acquit ourselves as well as we possibly can, as, 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 as greatly as we possibly can sort of in the moment. And, you know, that, that kind of rising to the campaign moment that Kelly described that, that her organisation is doing is, you know, an inspirational idea of that, I think. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about, um, uh, you know, you, 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 as, a, as, a, as a group, um, Greenpeace, the, the, the team at Greenpeace that I'm just such a, such a privilege to be part of, you know, keeping ourselves together, keeping focused on the mission, taking care of uh, one another and being really conscious of the caring obligations that, that we all have because we're all embedded in families, in communities and so on. So being really conscious of those, those caring obligations. Um, being very alive to the campaign opportunities that, that Kelly mentions because disruption does create moments of, of, of opportunity and that doesn't mean you take any glee in those moments of opportunity because there is suffering in them too, but there is also the suffering is also balanced with the opportunity for, um, uh, for greater justice and for greater sustainability in the world. And I think also that obligation is about uh, giving a sense of stability that that one of the the really uh, the really dangerous narratives at the moment is that everything is falling apart. Well, actually, everything is not falling apart. There are cracks and there are dangers, but everything is not falling apart. And institutions like the ACF, like Greenpeace, like many others out there are able to provide, I think, some, some ballast and some reassurance in these times that actually everything is not falling apart, that we have a mission to attend to and that we will continue with that mission even in difficult times. Oh, thank you. I think I needed to hear that. Um, Kelly, you alluded to tipping points a minute ago and I'm, I'm thinking about this you know, this report that we're here to discuss and unpack. So the UN's Environmental Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC report, which has been called this Code Red for Humanity. Is that one of the tipping points that you were just thinking about? I mean, or could it lead to a tipping point in climate action? Uh, I No, it wasn't. I, I don't think the report, I don't know. I would be surprised if this re- the report led to a tipping point because I think folks like us look at it and it gets reported in the media for a couple of days. So really the drumbeat that groups like Greenpeace and ACF and others, they're constantly talking about climate change, that it's here now, but the solutions are here now and, and here's what we need to do to it. Um, that sort of drumbeat is, for me, the most important way to change the story. These are moments but I feel like our report that most people aren't going to read um, is not a tipping point. The tipping points I was thinking about was um, the more positive ones. So the fact that people are starting to see and feel like this is the bad side, feel the the damage, they're, like they're feeling the heat of climate change, literally they're, they're breathing in the smoke. Um, there's terrible events across the globe at the moment in, in the northern hemisphere that have we experienced in our in our summer um, and, and will experience again very sadly. People are seeing that, so they're really worried about climate change. And that has led to more concern broadly in the community. So you're talking majority, want more action, majority are concerned. 
um, majority I don't think government's doing enough. And so that pressure's mounting. So you're starting to see members of the current federal government splitting. You know, the current federal government between the Liberal Party and the, um, the National Party is starting to have different views on climate change. Um, you're starting to see other global leaders stacking on pressure on Australia um, and um, a prime minister who would not talk about net zero now talking about it poorly and at the, in completely the wrong time frame, but that wasn't there a year ago. So I don't, you know, I always think about um, the the future's not in a not a linear extension of the past, not a linear progression of it. So these tipping points are moments when things change more drastically than they have in the past, and I feel like we're getting closer and closer to that in Australia around the government of Australia taking action, which is pretty much the last mob of people in Australia to figure out that climate change is real, um, and because we are seeing action in other places, in other states and territories in business. So that's what I meant by tipping point, a little bit more of the positive side of it. David, do you, do you want to add anything to to that? Yeah, look, I think um, there, are, there are lots of tipping points, right? There's, there's um, you know, tipping points uh, aggregate. Um, and I think for some people, the report will have been a tipping point. Um, for others, the tipping point will have been when the smoke showed up in their nostrils two years ago. Um, and different people have different tipping points around different levels of involvement and tipping points are different for different uh, institutions and organisations and demographics and so on. Um, look, I certainly got emails from people saying, look, I, you know, David, <laughs> you, you've talked to me about this stuff in the past, but I've just seen the headlines and so I see now is the time to get involved. So, you know, clearly for some folks the IPCC report did make a huge difference. And I think I think among the scientific community, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Joel Gerges, for example, who wrote that wonderful book, Sunburnt Country, sort of, you know, the book that you give every um, uncle who you're fond of but is a bit crazy and doesn't believe the weather's changed about the sort of long history of, of climate in Australia. And, you know, Joel wrote a wonderful piece in the Saturday paper where she talked about how this this report was really the last chance of the global scientific community to have an influence on on um, decision makers around 1.5. And I think they have. I think they have. Um, so I agree with Kelly that there are multiple tipping points and lots of those tipping points are positive. Um, but I think for some audiences, this report has been heard. So let's just get into this report because um, I think it's important to just unpack it a little bit for people who maybe did see the headlines. I know a lot of our audience pay really close attention to this stuff. And then I know there are members of our audience, and I certainly can relate to this, who just kind of don't want to know. <laughs> you know, it's just all too hard. So I think it's good to give um, give a sense of sort of why this has been something that has been a long time coming, why it's being called a code red for humanity and what it actually means and what it doesn't mean. Because I think that there's probably some fear and heightened levels of anxiety that have, you know, that are potentially vulnerable to um, defeatism or, you know, other kinds of misinformation. So before we just get into all that, let's just lay the groundwork. Why, who actually writes these reports? And why should we listen to them? So is this original research? Is it just a big collection of all the other research? Is it saying something new? Well, it's, um, it's the IPCC is a, it's a bunch of governments, like 195, come together to join it. But they have scientists who write these reports. And they don't do their 
science themselves. They use science from a done over the time period that they might be writing the report on. So it could be five, last five years, last six years. And they write the report, but it does also have to be, it goes through an approval process with these governments. So there's always a little bit of worry from us when we read them as to what data didn't get in the report, what's been left out because you need 195 governments to, to um, be able to live with what the report says. And also the fact that um, it's peer-reviewed science, totally should be, right? That's what science should be. Um, but it does mean it can be a little bit old, the science. It might not be the absolute latest. Um, so I'm just talking by a couple of years here, not not much longer than that. But that that's from my understanding of how, how the IPCC works. But I, uh, David and I would both know a, a number of the authors. A lot of Australian scientists are involved. They're awesome people. They're very good scientists. Um, we've actually got some of the best in the world, luckily in Australia, as, as two contributing to this one. And this report in particular had a look at the physical impacts of climate change. That was its focus on what impact is it having on the actual world physically. So it's not about modelling um, or adapting adapting into the future. It's about what we're already seeing impacting our planet and our, and the people on it and the other living things on it. Okay. And so, David, can you tell us why why is this particular one being hailed as this is our last chance? Um, we've been trying to sound the alarm forever. This is it. You haven't been listening. Like, what is it about this one that has been so confronting for people in the know? Well, um, look, for, for, for people in the know, as it were, I mean, anyone following it, I guess, um, there has been a sort of sense of, of just waiting for the news that you you know that is coming um, uh, but is still unwelcome when it gets there. Um, and the news is really just that climate damage in the real world is accelerating um, you know, largely consistently with, with very bad or worst case, or in some instances worse than worst case scenarios. Um, and in particular that the, the window... Um, for avoiding global average temperature rise, crossing um, the 1.5 degree threshold uh, is is very slender. Um, it requires uh, very rapid transformation of um, countries, businesses, societies in a way that I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. Um, so, you know, in blunt terms, we've been told we've got a very short period of time to do something very big and that we're already suffering consequences for not having done it already. Um, and that's all pretty confronting because what we're talking about are not um, not hypothetical things. We're talking about communities lost, lives lost, uh, species becoming extinct, um, whole ecosystems in a state of severe stress or potential collapse. And so things like the the mass bleachings of the Great Barrier Reef that have caused um, more than half of the corals of the reef to uh, be killed or the vast loss of the southern kelp forests or the dying off of the mangroves in the north, the crisis of the Murray-Darling, the, the bushfires that immolated uh, 35 million hectares of our wonderful, wonderful country, um, the hot days, the drought. Um so this is why it is so uh, it is so confronting. Um, there might once have been a sense that climate change was a terrible thing to be avoided in the future. What this report tells us is that climate severe climate damage is upon us, is getting worse, 
and that we have got to swerve very rapidly to avoid running into even worse trouble. All right, so let's break down this 1.5 degree thing um, because I don't think people understand it. I think the focus on degrees is kind of just a little bit abstract for people, but the science says that we have heated up our planet about 1.1 degrees Celsius on average, which I think a lot of us struggle to actually figure out mathematically the difference, um, above pre-industrial levels and you know the devastating impacts that we're seeing already in the physical world. Why is staying within 1.5 degrees so important? And, and why has this become the big threshold of the Paris Climate Agreements and you know, the target that we're all still trying to, to meet? Uh, yes, well, I think um, I was actually at the Paris negotiations and 1.5 was something we had to fight really hard to get into it. Um, we, the world, we, the civil society world. <laughs> and and most importantly, you know, the, the nations that are most affected by climate change fought really hard to get it in there. It was definitely not on the cards at the start of the negotiation. Um, and it is that it's just it's just a tipping point. We're just talking about tipping points. It's a arbitrary point, really chosen, um, where things start getting um, worse for all living things um, once we heat the planet up more and more and more. So, um, one point, you know, zero degrees warming is better than um, everything. One point one is better than one point five. You know, one point six is better than two. Um, one point five is better than two. So it's arbitrary, but there has been some studies done by the IPCC actually. I think it was twenty eighteen where they had a look at the difference between a one point five and a two degree warmed world. And you start seeing very significant differences in the ability to generate food, um, to support people, the availability of water, the survivability of, of reef systems, which of course are nurseries for critters and little animals and fish that we humans eat. Um, so you just can't heat the world up. Um, and I know it might seem by a small amount. And if you live in a cold place like I do Melbourne right now, you're like, yes, bring on 1.5 degrees. But as a planet, it's like warming your body by that much. When you warm your body by that much, you end up in hospital if it stays at 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees warmer than it's supposed to be um, for a couple of days. You know, And in fact, what we're seeing with the, um, the heat waves is that's warming people's bodies up by a couple of degrees and people are dying because of a warming climate. So you know, these small temperature rises, I know it's hard to fathom for a planet, but just think about it from your body, which is supposed to be 37.5 degrees or whatever it is. Um, I probably got that wrong, but something like that. Um, and if it goes one or one or two degrees over there, you get very, very ill and at risk of dying. So it's probably not a bad way to think through it. But every half a degree, tiny tenth of a degree matters. I think the report tells us that, that we're um, – that there is a narrow window, as David said, but there is the window there. And we're not at the start of that either. Like there is transformation going on. It needs to happen much, much, much faster. And basically it says that we have to massively cut climate pollution this decade. So chatter about net zero by 2050 is a distraction and probably a strategy by fossil fuel companies and the politicians that do their bidding to delay action. Like the report says we can do this. Um, but we do need to act now. Yeah, look, just to just to jump in and emphasise what Kelly said, I mean, 
I think I think her team and certainly my team are dedicating every hour of every day of of their lives now to every fraction of every degree because every fraction means lives that will be saved, communities that will be saved, species that will be saved, and more options for future flourishing. So it is you you could not ask for a more a more all-encompassing uh, cause, a more all-encompassing calling than just that, uh, the, the fight for every single fraction of every degree. Each one is precious. There's a really cool saying, um, Wally, that I like. Um, I think the, the writers use this is not game over, it's game on. And so I think that these sorts of moments actually are, um, they're a bit scary for people, but they're also a moment which drives energy into creating the change that David just talked about because it's definitely it's been game on for a long time and, th- as I said, the transition is happening. You know, when I started working in the environment NGO world, I've worked in the environment my whole life, but when I joined the NGO world, we had 3% of our electricity from renewable sources in Australia. It is now 30%. So the one one way I stay um, focused is to always look back to where we came from as a country and how far we've moved. So how does it get to 50 and then 75 and 100% renewables? Completely, I can see that pathway, but we're not at 3% anymore. So we're not we're not nowhere. We are transforming. It's just a bit too slow. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's so good to kind of just right off the bat um, eliminate this idea that 1.5 is this kind of number in the sky and if we somehow breach it, that's it, game over, we've gone off the cliff and there's nothing left to salvage so we may as well just give up. Um, you know, it's is there, are there any other just off the bat um, – misconceptions that you have heard in the week since this report came out that you feel as leaders you just want to clear up? Oh, well, <laughs> I'll break the order of things and jump in first on this one. Yeah, look, I think one of the one of the most frustrating narratives is the idea that in some way this is humanity that has failed. Um, climate change, climate damage is a thing that is being done to the vast majority of humanity and to nature, largely by a fairly small number of vested interests, mostly fossil fuel corporations. And they have invested a lot of time and treasure over many years to prevent, to actively prevent uh, climate action. You know, renewable energy, solar power has been one of the most popular things in Australia for my whole lifetime and all that has thwarted the march of renewables as, you know, the better technology, the superior technology in every way has been the vested interest of the fossil fuel industry. So I think that right off the bat, let's not turn this game on moment, as as Kelly describes it, into some verdict on the human race. Um, People are social animals and our, we have an innate propensity to good and climate change is a crime that has been committed, not um, some uh, ordained uh, original sin of our species. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't. I'm so glad you raised that, David, because we, for those out there listening who listen to the story from our political leaders or an energy company that say, but you're the one using the energy, like you've got to do your bit. 
I'm here to tell you right now that your recycling whilst will make us all feel good, will not solve the climate problem, neither will changing your light bulbs, neither will you alone switching to renewable energy, although I do all of those things because I want to do my small part. I am not in charge. I'm not in the cabinet rooms or the boardrooms and making decisions, do we build a clean energy solar plant, do we build a coal plant, a gas plant? There are a few people in charge of that. They are um, they are making the wrong decisions. They are culpable. They are responsible, and they know it while they're doing it right now. So um, that'll be that'll be enough of me getting grumpy at them. But but my main message is don't believe them. Don't believe them when they try and tell you a story that you're the one that has to change. It, it, we we have to rise up and share our voice and ask for better action. And that's why actually being a part of a group, whether it's Australia Remade, Greenpeace, ACF, WWF, whatever group, whatever group you align with that has your values, um, join them because together our voice can be really ramped up to drive the changes we need to do to get that tipping point I talked about earlier. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. I mean, I I know we all have have felt and have had conversations. I imagine with friends and family where the fear. And this sort of sense of guilt or shame compounds and it's like, but we're all complicit in this. We're all part of it. You know, we, we still need to drive our cars and we still need, you know, and, and it's this frustration of as individuals just feeling so helpless or self-flagellating and moving into, okay, what are all of the 10,000 ways that I can try to reduce my carbon footprint when the very idea of a carbon footprint was invented by the fossil fuel industry to keep us all focusing on our behavior as individuals rather than on the fact that it's a handful of companies refusing to allow this positive change to come through, Um, which kind of just beggars belief. I mean, I think there's a part of human nature that almost finds it easier to believe that we're all guilty than to believe that a handful of people would honestly destroy the world to protect their profits. Like, that just seems like a conspiracy theory or like some kind of bizarre Machiavellian play. You know, it's almost unfathomable. Okay, how's everybody doing? I hope you're hanging in there. And I just want to take a moment to pause and breathe and say that there are so many solutions that don't just involve tinkering around the edges, but that really do involve systemic change and people using their networks and their influences, their money to fuel the world that we want. If you would like to read a bit more about this and where do we begin, I can suggest a blog that we wrote um, that's been one of our most popular called We Are The People We've Been Waiting For, How To Answer The Question, What Can I Do? I'll pop a link in the show notes and you can go have a look on our website. Thanks everybody. Back to the show. But, you know, while we're, while we're on to the politics, I mean, we're seeing now a sort of growing um, cross-partisan, you know, musterings of, well, maybe it's time to, you know, innovate, not regulate. And I'm hearing this in the U.S. and I'm hearing this 
uh, a little bit in Australia from our own prime minister, you know, that we're going, we're not going to tax our way out of this problem. We're going to let technology and innovation drive the solutions as fast as possible. What do you guys think? Is this sort of some sign of encouraging, at least we're acknowledging the problem now in all sides of politics, or is it just further refusal to take on fossil fuels and deal with that reality? Well, would you say, David, that uh, our government is innovating? I'm, I wouldn't. I think um, supporting gas. I mean, how 1960s of you. Um, it's just um, there's technology, not taxes. It's a good slogan. Rings off well, I, and people I don't think are buying it. We're releasing some polling in ten days or so. That'll show you why people are not buying it. Can't can't divulge the findings of shit, but then they, they'll be out pretty soon after this podcast. And um, people aren't buying this gas-led recovery or the idea of carbon capture and storage in this technology. I also would um, say that, and um, we probably need to do everything right now. <laughs> Because the next 10 years has to be the biggest biggest deployment of renewable energy um, and investment in clean tech that this you know this planet has ever seen threefold that what we're already doing. So it was in the IPCC, not the IPCC, the um, International Energy Agency report that came out recently that also said we should not be opening up new gas um, fields in the world. They were saying you also need to triple the amount of investment over the next decade. So if that's what we need to do, you will need to use markets and regulation um, and all forms of activity to, to drive change. And I do think there is in Australia most definitely a hesitancy to take on the fossil fuel industry. The fossil fuel industry are big donors to political parties and to political candidates um, in in this country. And we have been, and I know Greenpeace have also uncovered through their investigations team and now through our investigations team, many times where you can link a bad decision to give money to a new development, a coal development, shouldn't call it a development, it's a catastrophe, um, a pollution bomb, but a coal mine or a gas field opening up to give money to them after after the proponents of that had made donations to a party. And it's very difficult to um, prove corruption, but how many times do you need to see it to believe it? Yeah. Um, look, I'm glad, that Kelly, that you went first in responding to that question because I really needed to rein in my um, grumpiness to um, answer that one. I mean, you, you, listen to, <laughs> you, you listen to some of the things that Morrison and Taylor and Fitzgibbon and others come out with and you think to yourself is it evil is it stupid or do they simply not care because there are no other options here now of course we need technology we have it it's called renewable energy it works let's just roll it out as fast as we can creating as many jobs enlivening as many communities and preventing as much pollution as we possibly can how does that sound i'm for that of course government money comes into it because the government has a say on how it regula- how it regulates, what it taxes, what it doesn't, what it subsidises, what it doesn't. And at the moment, as we know, there is a massive favouring of the uh, climate-destroying, air-polluting, water-guzzling uh, fossil uh, fuel industries. 
So yes, of course, those finance flows need to be reversed. Um, all of that simply needs to be done and it needs to be done fast. But, um, you know, the, the great thing is um, that the some of these decisions are being made out from underneath our federal uh, politicians. Um, so both ACF and Greenpeace have, have got long track records of working in different ways, um, engaging with business. Um, one of Greenpeace's things recently has been our re-energise campaign. And in that campaign, we've seen really significant Australian businesses, Woolworths, Bunnings, Coles, Aldi and others, who have simply made the commitment that they will buy nothing other than renewable electricity by 2025 or sooner. And when you add up those commitments, you're talking about more than 4% of the national electricity market shifting from coal to renewables, whether Angus Taylor or Scott Morrison like it or not. These are simply purchasing decisions that are being made because business leaders see they both smell the smoke in their nostrils and they see the uh, business uh, strategy writing on the walls. And, you know, let me tell you, in the, it, it, when you have these conversations with business leaders, they know absolutely that it is not a question of, of individual action, um, that the biggest thing they can do is shifting, you know, when when the head of Woolies said they were making this decision um, uh, uh, to me in a sort of Saturday morning cafe in a rainy Sydney suburb, um, that was 1% of the national electricity market moving in one go. I mean, these are extraordinary shifts. And these shifts are so important because of the point Kelly makes around the, um, the vested interests, the institutional corruption. And I think the best way of seeing this is, you know, yes, yes, there are the sort of the sharp edge of the vested interests, the stuff that is exposed with the sort of political donations and so on. But that is embedded in a wider system of, of power, which um, I like to refer to as the, as the fossil fuel order. And what I think we are seeing is the flipping of that order and the emergence of this new thing, this clean energy order. And I think I completely agree with Kelly's analysis. I think this is now going to happen really, really fast, so long as we are committed to it happening really, really fast. So assuming Australia's federal government doesn't suddenly have a massive change of heart and uh, decide that it's going to start sprinting ahead on this, are we, a lot of us find some optimism in the fact that our states and territories have been sort of stepping up. And, and this has also been true in other countries in the world, you know, where maybe the federal government's a bit slow, but the closer you get to the level of the people, um, you know, the more we're seeing sort of leadership in various pockets and places. Can we do this without federal government leadership? If all, you know, in Australia, if all the states and cities and territories just decide that they're going to commit to, you know, be as uh, carbon neutral or carbon negative as possible, is this something we can do despite federal government kind of just being dragged along? It's a good question. I, I immediately thought, you know what, we are doing this, not just without federal government support, but with disruption from the current federal government. The federal governments are different um, and, and different federal governments have done different things. But this current um, government over the last six years has put in barriers to the solution. So I suppose we are. Can But I, do think, I still think the federal government's important because to get to 30% renewable energy is very different to get to 100. And actually, you know, as we all often say in our movement, we want to get to like 500, 700% because we want to export 
um, steel and aluminium hydrogen that's generated from renewable energy. Uh, we want to electrify everything in Australia, our manufacturing, our transport. So we're going to need a lot more electricity. So um, to do that, you need coordination and organisation. And to be honest, to really care for communities that um, coal communities and gas communities, you really do need a coordinated effort nationally because you're going to have to coordinate how coal and gas plants and, and mines close um, whilst other sources of clean energy are opening. Um, how do you make sure that the communities that have been producing our energy for decades transition into good jobs, sustainable jobs, forever jobs? Um, that is going to require leadership. So I feel like it's difficult to do it without the federal government, but so far we are. Uh, and I also feel like the business community have really changed in the last two years. I remember sitting around the table at the Australian Climate Roundtable in January 2020. Imagine, remember those days when we were allowed to sit in rooms. And the Australian Climate Roundtable is um, a number of peak business groups, unions, ACOS, ACF, WWF, and a few others. And um, we were debating this statement that was going to go out and I just stopped. I said, why is this statement all negative? What? Are, <laughs> come on, guys. Acting on climate change is a good thing for the country um, and it's going to unleash all of these wonderful opportunities. And Roscano put his report out and um, I remember watching Jennifer Westacott actually on Q&A in February of that year and I, I turned to my partner and said, oh, my God, that sounds exactly like what I would say. You know, how great is that the head of the BCA and the head of the ACF might be saying pretty similar things about acting on climate change in that positive sense. So um, that's very different to the years before where the BCA was was part of unwinding the carbon price that we had and, and unwinding a lot of the um, structure we had, which is why the Australian Climate Roundtable was formed in the first place. Um, so the business community is switching. And as um, David's already pointed out, some of the announcements from the companies he's been working with are big and are getting bigger. There's more to come, say, from them. Um, it's amazing. I just reckon they need to get the type of ambition that the people that I work with, David's of the world, you, Lily, and others, that we just dream big in the uh, advocacy world because we know what the science says. We know how fast we have to change. The business community is still inherently conservative, just doesn't dream as big, doesn't think as big, gets stuck in the barriers a little bit more, whereas I would find ways around that barriers. I, I would always love for the nonprofit world and the business world to just switch our people more often than we do because <laughs> we're both going to benefit from that. There's a lot that we could benefit from as well. So um, there's a lot to to really drive us forward. Um, so do we need the federal government? Yes, but they're becoming, they're fast becoming irrelevant. And to be honest, a lot of us were working on that. We decided back in 2014 that the federal government weren't going to move very fast. So we said, well, let's work on the states and territories. Let's work on the business community. Let's work on the Australian community and change the story there, excite people um, and change it into a positive story. And um, the federal government is the only one that hasn't moved. Do you think they will move now that the Biden administration, um, Boris Johnson in the UK, Japan, the EU, like so many of our major trading partners are going to force them to, if we don't have our own domestic price on carbon, you know, they'll be slapping one onto our exports. Like, are, is Australia just going to be dragged along? I think the, 
I think the, the question is, I mean, I think Australia will try and avoid being dragged along based on what we've seen so far from Morrison and Taylor. And we've seen, you know, some some uh, jibes at the US from uh, Taylor in recent days. Um, it seems absolutely extraordinary to me that Australia would get into a diplomatic spat with its principal ally over whether or not we should be allowed to continue with policies that are killing our world heritage and endangering the future of our peoples. I mean, the, the, the behaviour of our federal government is so through the looking glass, it is so irrational and nonsensical, it is actually difficult to explain sometimes to, to sort of anyone who's not, not close to it because you do sort of at some level have a presumption of rationality and indecency. Uh, sorry, and decency, and instead, what we what we what we see is a pattern of irrational, you know, indecent behaviour. And and I I just you know I look at I look at our our mob, I look at the Australian people, and I think we we are a decent people who are being led to indecent consequences by the obscene behaviour of our federal leaders. So there is no choice than other than to move um, the country around them. And as Kelly says, um, we are. We are doing that. Um, but I also don't think they have gauged just how close Australia is to becoming a real pariah nation. I mean, I, I, Greenpeace is a global organisation. I spend quite a bit of time talking to my global colleagues and journalists from other countries and things. And the extent of the sort of head shaking, they're like, you know, what on earth is going on in that in that country of yours? Oh, they, the, the announcement the other day of, you know, potentially there's a there's a a productive gas well going near the 12 apostles. I mean, the world just looks at this stuff and goes, who, who is running this joint? And I think that that does take us to the sort of the other real question about the, the states, which is while we have seen some terrific progress from the states around renewable energy zones and around uh, targets um, and all sorts of things, really the states are still nowhere when it comes to shutting down uh, new the opening up of new fossil fuel deposits. And as we know from the International Energy Agency, there needs to be no no new, no new fossil fuel opened up anywhere. It should all be stopped now. There is no no justification for any of it. And unfortunately the states and the territory territories are not where they need to be there yet. Okay. So we're going to, we're going to pivot real soon into like what we can all do and some of these solutions, but just because we do have an election coming up probably early next year or, you know, whenever they decide it will be most advantageous to try to do it. Um, what is, so no new fossil fuels, really clear, tangible thing that people can be looking for and pressing their candidates on looking for from their parties. Obviously net zero by 2050 isn't going to cut it. So what should we be asking for? What is the the target that is actually going to get us where we need to go? I reckon we shouldn't talk about targets. And I don't think, I actually don't think it's very wise to talk about no new things as a big public communication because the coalition just weaponized that. I mean, they did in the last time this whole Adani you know stop Adani campaign which David and I were very involved in our organizations were very involved in did get weaponized and the Labor Party got hit over the head more uh, on it than the coalition did even though the coalition supported it a lot more and wanting to put a billion dollars worth of NAE funding into it and a whole range of other things like it's not even I think I think we've got to be very careful that there is politics we don't deal deal in it or play in it but 
the politicians can weaponize certain things. So we've got to make it about climate action is a good thing for this country. So whoever does the most climate action is doing the most good for the country. Like that's got to be the premise, I think, of our work. And then the things that we're asking for have to be real and tangible so that people can see it in their lives and how it makes their lives better. So if you're in Gladstone and ACF after the last election got sick of the weaponization of coal and gas communities. So we started up a project in Gladstone to ask the people in Gladstone what they wanted for their future. And since then, there's been a whole lot of community and local industry and local government run forums up in Gladstone about their energy future, which was focused on renewables and clean exports and how do we get there. So so we know that that community is not hanging on to coal and gas. Um, so we need to we need to say, okay, so what does that look like? Does it look like hydrogen? Well, there is actually now investment going on in Gladstone for green hydrogen or to switch the aluminium plant over there to be um, um, based on renewable energy. So that is a real thing if you live there. Um, uh, energy independence like solar panels and batteries on every every public building in Australia by over the next five years. That is a real thing. Um, making us a clean export superpower. And, 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 and resting that in places like Gladstone, where in the Hunter Valley you could export aluminium generated from renewable steel, generated from renewables in Wyala in South Australia as well, like making it real and tangible to people so that they can see how they fit into this clean future. Because until that happens, um, we're still going to, still unless we, the Davids and the Kellys and the environment groups of the world and others make the climate solutions relevant to people's lives so they can see how their lives are better. I, I think people will be a little bit sceptical of them or think it's still a problem I can worry about at the next election. I'm not going to worry about it that much at this one. Um, but but now is the time, I think, when if we can do that right and really excite people and the parties are actually <laughs> clear on their climate policies, um, bearing in mind that also the rise of the independence is really great I love it myself and I think that's a really important part of climate movement in this country as long as they can be feel secure that speaking up for what we want as a future I design politics is really uninspiring at the moment there's no one's you know we talk about what the future could be it's just having a go at everyone else but I was starting to see change in that in in some leaders and I I know that David and I both talk about politics with frustration or party with frustration. But even in the Liberal Party um, or the National Party, there are people, MPs that hold different views in those parties and some that I think are really trying to move move those forward. Uh, so, you know, my big thing for people who are listening to this is your um, who you vote for is really important and it should be based on a lot of things you care about. I hope climate's one of those. Um, it's a really important thing to be doing who you vote for, but raising your voice in the lead up to an election through through programs. Australia's going to run a uh, ACF um, is going to run a, a big program called Together We Can Climate Action Now, where we're just trying to get lots of different people from lots of different walks of life sharing why they want climate action, and we're hoping to get hundreds of thousands of people to share that, and we'll share that with the MPs as well. Um, but your voice now and over the next year really matters. Your voice now and in the next couple of months really matters because the big climate um, convention in Glasgow is in the very start of November. And if the government's going to commit more 
to do more to reduce emissions this decade, that's the place in which, the first place in which they could do it. And if they don't, they'll be under extreme pressure internationally. Um, I, I sort of agree with David. It's possible they'll do it, but they're, geez, they're stubborn. They're stubborn. Don't you just hear a different kind of Australia when you listen to, to Kelly talk? And we have this, this curious paradox in this country, this enormous, physically enormous country, the huge skies and the oceans, that politics in this huge country has somehow managed to become so small and that the way in which our leaders talk down to us imagines us as little people and it's just a despicable way to treat and to talk to Australians. And you hear, you hear Kelly talk about the future and it opens up simply a different kind of country. And so in addition to all the points that are made about who is, who is promising genuine climate action, I think, I, think, I think we should be looking our politicians and would-be politicians in the eye and listening carefully to their words and not shutting off and asking some really fundamental questions like, who do you think is actually being straight with you or who is simply trying to tell you the lie that they think will serve their greatest political advantage? We should be rewarding the political truth-tellers. And when you listen to our politicians and would-be politicians, who are those who are seeking to unite Australians and seeking to extend the hand to other countries as well? And who are those who are seeking always to divide, always to find some target, some enemy, someone to pick on? Because we all know that a, that a politician, that a leader who is just looking for somebody to pick on may well one day pick on you because a bully is a bully is a bully. And when we listen to our politicians and our would-be politicians, who are those who are talking about how we expand the conditions for lives fully lived? About how all of us deserve time and space and security and the ability to love and to do meaningful things. Because ultimately, if you are asking why do we care about climate change, it's because it forecloses upon all of these things. And in this time of climate crisis, what are our politicians seeking to do? Not only are they failing to act on the climate crisis, but we are seeing this unrelenting series of pernicious attacks on people's ability to lead decent lives and on the ability of charities, workers' organisations and others to act on their behalf. And maybe finally, as we, as, we, as we listen to our politicians and our would-be politicians, which of them speak of the world with wonder and awe in their voices? When have you ever heard our politicians, our Prime Minister, talk with longing of the sea or of the deep outback or of what the earth feels like after the rain? How dare, how dare they, how dare they speak down 
to the Australian people when they know so little, it seems, of the conditions that are conducive to the happiness of our souls. So I'm for your country, Kelly O'Shaughnessy, and I will march down that road with you any day of the week. Oh, thank you both. You're giving me shivers. Um, I'm a little, I'm a little bit inspired. Go, Kelly. I love, I, I love you know, this. Uh, this is not really related to what we're talking about. When David and I first met each other, you know, and a few years later, we we're having a coffee and we said, "Oh, we didn't know if we would like each other because we were so, we're such, we are quite different people." And I was just listening to David going, "God, I love it when you, when you go on this big thinking moment." And the people who are listening to this won't be able to see, but David looks up as he's thinking. And he thinks as he's speaking, and and I love it. I just, it's so intelligent, but so passionate. Anyway, no, I agree. Now. On on our yeah, last exciting. episode, there was a moment at which you know I said, "I love it when you go all preacher on us," and it's true. <laughs> yeah, you must have had a past life as a performer. I just, I do love that story, Kelly, about that cup of coffee when we looked at each other. That was, yeah. it was a very, it was a very precious day, actually. Um, yeah, the, the the friendship with you means a great deal in all of this. Look, guys, I could talk to you for 7,000 hours, but I know that we're going to be, you know, starting to close our, our time together. And so I want to make sure that we leave people with some sense of kind of where to from here. So the first thing I want to ask about is like, do we do a good enough job of really talking about not just making things less awful, but, but what it would be like if in 2050, or whatever, you know, what it would be like for our children and and all of us who are still alive to be living on a stable, safe climate, to not be afraid of summer, to not be like that we could get to a point where actually, yeah, we've stabilized, you know, we're not pumping pollution out there. We're not knitting this blanket that's going to cook us all anymore. We've, we've stabilized the climate. We've drawn down on the extra crap that we put out there or we're, we're making good headway. And therefore, like we can have our world back and we can live with a sense of optimism and excitement and, you know, without this doom, you know, kind of hanging over us all the time. Like, do we not talk about that enough because we're afraid it sounds too Pollyanna or maybe disingenuous given the severity of the crisis right now? Is that something that we can do more of? Yeah. For me, the answer to that is very clear and simple. That yes, we could do more of it. No, we don't do it well enough, but we are doing it better than we used to. I think that's one of the reasons why a group of us wanted Australia Remade to, to form, actually, why David and I and others are really involved in, um, in, in helping it work is because it's yet another way that we could talk about what the future could be like and that it can be better and much better, really, can be wonderful. And it's not to say that life is also not wonderful now, you know. Um, and unless, I mean, what is it, Martin Luther King in his speech, he didn't like, I've got a 10-point plan, you know, I, I have a dream, <laughs> not a, I have a nightmare, um, or a 10-point or a plan. It was just I dream this and I dream that one day I will see this. And we need to be doing that. I do feel I do it kind of naturally and I do look at people going, are you guys just thinking I'm just being all pie and a bit of a wanker here? And particularly when I'm doing media, I look at the journalists and I've, I've, tra- I've, done, I've done a little test, a couple of tests on this. When you go to budget night back in the olden days when you could travel and go to Parliament House on budget night and there's this lineup of 100 people from all of these agencies and you would then 
get thrown in front of a hundred, you know, thirty cameras and a hundred journos. And I, I um, talked. I use the word love in my um, my little speech to the camera to talk about the budget of all things, right? Um, and I just, and I was talking about the Great Barrier Reef actually, and how much money has been invested in the destruction of the reef through subsidising fossil fuels and helping the reef through supporting renewable energy. Um, and uh, and I and I used the word love, and then I looked at the journalists, and I saw this camera guy. He was just squatted down. He's like, yeah. And um, I just, I, I kind of feel like we're all humans. And even if we're the prime minister or a hardened journalist or an advocate or an activist, we all get, we all need to see, we need to be able to see a future to believe it. Like you need to be able to see it. And the more that we can talk about it and the more that we can talk about how we get there and make it real is really important. And the last thing I would say to that is this little saying that I often stick to, which is um, hope inspires and fear paralyzes. It is, in fact, based in science. Um, there's a lot of um, science, behavioural science, about how you create change in people. And if you scare the bejesus out of people, pe- generally people will flight, not fight. And that's very true for things like climate change and the extinction crisis. So actually talking about what what could be, how we're getting there um, and exciting people about it, then we can people will hope and then you can turn that hope into action. But if you just talk about how crappy the world is and it's pretty easy to feel that way right now watching the news, um, you'll just you'll just crawl, crawl into your corner. So my bigger piece of advice for people is go places where you will find hope and, and other people. Um, just being here with you two has brightened my entire day and I've had a pretty good day today. Um and um, being around people where you can just chat to and join forces with to create that future, and not, it takes it from the dream to the reality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree and wholeheartedly share the sentiment around that. You know, that's why Australia Remade is so fundamentally important. Um, I think to our work, and you know, there was a there was a an occasion a couple of years ago where um, uh, the Gloucester um, community decided to hold their annual um, uh, community, I forget the name of the gathering, but the annual gathering around the, the nine pillars of Australia remade and you sort of walked into this community hall with these pillars, these ideas of Australia remade of what a magnificent country, you know, the promise of our country fulfilled, you know, justice for first nations and a restored uh environment and um meaningful jobs for all and greater opportunity for realized lives and a more vibrant democracy and all these all these things that i brought to life with the drawings of children and the the hairs just rose on the back of my neck and it was just this extraordinary community gathering and you know it is not the case that people do not care passionately about the about the future of our country it's just that if you describe it as politics then all of a sudden it starts to seem very wearisome um so visions like australia remade and you know that we bring to life through our through conversations like this one but as kelly says more through deeds in the world so um you know every every agreement signed by a business uh to bring new renewable energy into being that that creates 
the jobs in the communities and the uh, the, draw, the the change in the the literal change in the atmosphere. And I mean, look, you could do far far worse than just watch Damon Gamow's wonderful film from a couple of years ago, um, uh, twenty forty, which I have seen. I do not know how many times. Um, I, I can I can recite it basically. Um, but of, of all of the wonderful moments in that film, there's the moment where uh, Damon or one of his imagined uh, one of his characters emerges into the the uh, computer visualized computer generated street in which the cars are electric and quiet and the streets have been uh, to some extent rewilded and what you hear is birdsong. And now every morning when I step outside into my street, as well as the sense of the ghosts of climate damage that always linger on the edge of my fears, there are those, there is the sense of hope, of optimism, of purpose that comes from the fact that I have seen that artistic vision of those safe, life-filled, birdsong-filled streets. And that promise is now there every morning because that vision was realised in, in that film. And, and we know we have the technology to make it so, so let's get on with it. Ah, oh, look, thank you guys. You've both been so amazing. So we'll just end on, you know, a few kind of final thoughts. And um, I think, David, while we're talking about birdsong, did you want to share with us <laughs> a particular story that you told me recently that I found um, pretty moving about something that's kind of being a bit of a, a guide or a compass for you in this moment? Uh, you're talking about the the, <laughs> the visit from the feathered friend I got earlier this year. Um, yeah, so like like all of us uh, in um, lockdown in Sydney and Melbourne and many other places, I've been uh, pretty confined to uh, one desk in particular over a lot of the, the um, COVID period and that that's in our um, family study and it overlooks um, a laneway that which I'm looking at now, <laughs> um, which looks onto a trellis full of vines in the backyard of the sort of 1900 roughly um terrace big terrace house townhouse opposite and there are huge um mobs of rainbow lorikeets that um sometimes come and sit in those vines and they eat and they muck about and they they do rainbow lorikeet things and then there'll be a moment when all of a sudden all of them will just sort of leap into the air and all at once and the geometric patterns of the rainbow will you know spiral around as these extraordinary birds fly off um, and I've seen this however many times while I've been confined in, in this study and there was one moment earlier this year when I was sitting with the window open and this happened and there was this sort of um, <laughs> a sort of moment that is best described just as sort of whoosh um, where uh, there was a sense of just of, of life and of energy and of force just sort of coming through the open window more or less straight at me and then a thud and there was a sort of moment of not not knowing what had happened and then realizing well a rainbow lorikeet has must have just flown in through the window and grazed the top of my head and um, I don't have much hair so it was 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 just you know just managed to touch my hair um and I turned around and the um the lorikeet was there and it was apparently okay but a bit stunned and it 
looked at me side on through one eye as birds do. And then um, it uh, sort of hopped up and did a few sort of half-flying hops to the shelves that I'm looking at now that are to the right of the desk I sit at. And um, it paused next to um, some books uh, and I reached for my camera as one does in the 21st century to, to capture the, the moment while I'm thinking, you know, how am I going to help this rainbow lorikeet outside? You know, the, the lorikeet clocked where the window was and, and took off, but it was only afterwards that I realised that the, the book that the lorikeet had sat next to and had arched its wings next to was Paul Gilding's book, The Great Disruption. And Paul was the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific in the 90s and was then um, CEO of Greenpeace International for a while. Paul's been very generous with advice whenever I've gone to him for his ideas about things. Um, And The Great Disruption is um, his book from a number of years ago, which really, you know, is one of of those books that focuses... um, very plainly on just how serious uh, the climate crisis is, but his vision for the trajectory of, of near-term history. And I hadn't read read the book um, in some time and uh, nudged by the lorikeet, I pulled it off the shelf and reread some of its most um, striking passages, which um, do you, you, want to, you want a reading here? Yeah, give us a quote. So a very, a very quick Um, a quick quote from the book. Um, Paul says, there will be a tipping point when denial ends and the reality that we face a global civilization threatening risk will become accepted wisdom virtually overnight. At that point, we will respond dramatically and with extraordinary speed and focus. But then he goes on, but a word of caution just as denial and pessimism can prevent action, ironically, so can unstrategic optimism. If we sit back and passively wait for the dam to break, it will at the very least delay that day. Instead, we have to choose active, engaged and strategic hope. And it was very hard not to think that um, sometimes the cosmos does move in mysterious and romantic ways. And just perhaps, just perhaps at the start of this year, that rainbow lorikeet was reminding me of those particular words from Paul Gilding. Mm. I certainly hope that the dam of denial has broken. Kelly, do you want to take us out with any words of comfort or wisdom that have helped you in these times, something that you hold to? Yes. Well, fortunately, I haven't been visited by any birds inside the house um but uh, i've already given one little trick away which is always looking back to where we came from to dream about the future but there's this um it's part of um rudyard kipling's if poem that i've always always loved i don't and i've never really thought deeply about why but the bit i love is if you can dream and not make your dreams your master if you can think and not make your thoughts your aim if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. I love it because it says you should dream, but you've got to work, you've got to do the, you can have hope, but you've got to do the action to, to make it real, to get, make the dreams real. Um, you, can, you can think, but you need to be caring and thinking and respecting where other people are thinking and feeling. 
Um, and then I love the last one, triumph and disaster. Like we have them all the time, right? <laughs> we have great wins and, and big <laughs> losses and it's just going to be okay. Like it's, it's really wonderful when great things happen, but you don't walk around and strut. And it's really terrible when bad things happen, but you're going to be around with other people and you're going to share that. And it's, it's going to be okay. So um, just remain calm, focus, work really hard. I've just always loved, I've always loved that. Um, and as David um, talked about the quote from Paul, I thought, well, they're a little bit similar in a way, um, but about, particularly about that active, that active dreaming, that active hope. Um, you know, as we say, the, um, the, the future is dark and it feels dark at the moment, but it is also not set and is going to be set by the people who take action today. So that's got to be us. Oh, absolutely. And thank God for us, you know, like I just feel like not us, these three people or even anyone listening today, but I mean that if there is any kindness in this whole play that we find ourselves in and, you know, being being alive on earth, it's that we get to do it with other actors. Like we are not alone. And it gives me such joy and comfort to be able to have a conversation with the two of you and to be able to share it with our our wider listeners and remakers in Australia and beyond so thank you both so much for being here to share your perspectives with us today I've really enjoyed everything Thank you, David and Kelly, and thanks everyone for listening to that conversation. I hope that it was really useful to you. And one of the big themes that we touched on was, of course, democracy and how we can't solve these big issues like climate change in a democracy that isn't actually representing the will of the people. So I'm really excited for our next two episodes. We're about to have a kind of special two-part series looking at democracy through the lens of a new film about to be released in Australia called Big Deal. Um, it has been directed by Craig Rucastle of The Chaser, and we are going to have Craig on the show alongside some very special guests to really unpack how we can all be involved in saving our democracy and making it much more worthy of the people that it represents. Again, it doesn't really matter where you live because these themes are pretty universal, sadly, although we will also try to bring in some really good international examples of where this is being done well. So I hope you get to tune into that. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for all of your support, all of your comments, ratings, and reviews. We will see you next time over on The Remakers. This has been The Remakers, a podcast by Australia Remade. We celebrate Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and cultures at the very heart of what it is to be Australian. That is 60,000 years as the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I record this podcast from Dara country, which is just north of Sydney. I want to pay my deepest respects to elders past, present and emerging on this land. I also want to thank my collaborator in chief and sometimes special guest co-host, Millie Rooney. Also a huge thank you to our producer, Anna Wilson and our chair, Louise Tarrant. If you like our theme song, it is by the Duke of Norfolk. You can learn more about Australia Remade and get links and show notes over on our website. That's australiaremade.org. 
and click on the podcast tab. Follow us so you never miss an episode. Be sure to spread the word. If you're feeling extra amazing, you can rate and review. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time.